0: You're listening to From Maker to Manufacturing, a podcast about what it really takes to grow a handmade business. Hey guys, welcome to episode 11 of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. Today's episode will be another Q&A episode, and I will also be giving you guys a little bit of an update of what's been going on with the company that I run, Simply Curated, how the summer went for us, um, and just kind of some updates and some changes on how we've been operating. This, I think, will help inform future questions, just so you guys kind of know where we're at I did go back and listen to the first Q&A episode, so I'm going to try my best to not repeat anything that was said, you know, in that show. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. All right, let's get into the show. first question comes from Kate who asks can you give us some tips for launching a handmade business how would you get the business out there and get your first sales well when it comes to launching a business I think that a lot of people who start a handmade business don't intentionally launch A lot of times we start out by, you know, trying a couple things out and maybe selling some things to our friends, putting a few things up on Etsy. I've seen very few people go through a very coordinated launch effort. That being said, I think going through a coordinated launch effort is a really amazing way to start a business and probably will lead to more success faster if you kind of make a plan you know, launch, do all your branding beforehand and don't really come out with anything until you're really ready. A lot of people that have started businesses on Etsy or just kind of slowly trickling into the marketplace, a lot of times those people will eventually kind of pull back and then go through a coordinated launch. My advice is to keep it simple. If you listen to the episode with Kristen from Thimble Press, she talked a little bit about how when they launched and, you know, very shortly after they launched, she just came out with so many products. It was like everything she ever wanted to make. She just went, went for it. And now they're kind of going through the process of pulling back and kind of really honing it in. I think if you start small and get really good and really well known at making whatever it is you're making or making whatever it is you kind of want to be known for, it becomes a lot easier to eventually branch out into other products or other areas of your market because you have then kind of gained a certain amount of traction, a certain amount of, um, you know, respect in, in your space and you've gained a certain amount of brand equity. Once you have an idea of your product line, you you know what you're going to sell or what you're going to try to make. I think the next thing would be where do you want to posi- position yourself within the marketplace? What are the other brands that currently make that type of product that you're trying to sell? What are their price ranges? And where do you want to fall within that existing market? There's a really good exercise that Megan Almond has you do in her class, which is go onto you know, Bergdorf's website and look up the category of the thing that you make and find the most outrageously expensive version of that thing sometimes you know that could be as simple as like soap that's selling for $60 or something like that you know she sells jewelry and of course there's insanely expensive jewelry but she wanted to limit it to costume jewelry not fine jewelry but she still found something that costs thousands of dollars so it's very easy to kind of get a picture of the market and then decide where you want your brand to be within that category do you want to be known as the affordable thing do you want to be a luxury but an attainable luxury you kind of have to make that decision and then you know move forward from there when it comes to actually getting your first sale I think 99% of the time almost all of our first sales you know at least on our online store or on our Etsy you know probably came from friends and family came from somebody you knew your mom bought something or whatever you know you posted it on your Facebook page and your friends kind of got the word out and and you know started buying and helping you out I would say that if you are talking about your first wholesale accounts how to get those first sales I would start with figuring out what kind of stores you want your products to be sold in and think of this not like oh just expensive stores or just big box stores or whatever try to think more like do you think your primary accounts will be more women's clothing boutiques or will they be gift shops will they be um You know, museum stores, or will they be? children's stores? Uh, Do you want to focus on primarily independently owned and operated? And the answer should be probably yes in the beginning because that's the easiest account to get. Once you've identified the kind of store that you want to be in, and don't get me wrong, many people's products can work in a variety of stores, but there's probably one main category that will be more successful or that the large majority of your stores would fall under. For us, the large majority of our stores fall under the gift shop category. However, there are plenty of nail salons hair salons spas women's clothing stores gift stores um, you know museum stores there are plenty of other categories of stores that have started to carry our products but it's easiest to just start focusing on one that way you don't get too overwhelmed and your list for outreach doesn't get too too big too quickly start making a list of those stores that are kind of your target stores and i would say keep an ongoing list that you add to once a week take the time to go through it add to it, start to grow that list, and then just start emailing those people. It's not hard to find a store's contact information. It should be on their website. There should be a main general email address, and you can send a pitch through there. It should be noted that if you're getting ready to pitch stores, you probably need to have a line sheet or a catalog or some kind of supporting material ready in order to be prepared to sell wholesale. But once you have those things, even if they aren't you know, what you might consider the highest standard... I mean, my first line sheet was horrific looking, it's pretty easy to just kind of start to get feedback from buyers. And even the buyers that don't purchase, I think that early feedback, the earlier you get out there and hear what they have to say about your product or about your packaging or whatever, is just really good information to have. So the earlier you can get started on that and don't wait for everything to be 100% perfect, in my opinion, the earlier the better. The next question comes from Erica and I think it falls into this category of things you should probably do if you're planning to launch or in many cases, relaunch your brand. And she asks about the process of packaging design and also working with design firms. She knows that she's gotten a couple different price ranges, but she says it's very hard to get actual numbers from people. And she was wondering if I could share kind of our costs when we did do a redesign. We worked with Stitch Design Company, and they're based out of South Carolina. It was a really great experience, but of course, you know, it was probably at the time the biggest investment I'd ever made in the business. I knew it was going to be expensive, but I had no idea how expensive it was really going to be. And I think that's why Erica is asking this question, just trying to get a general idea of how much this is going to cost. Well, the answer is it's very hard to tell without, you know, looking at what specifically you're doing. The way that Stitch broke down our, the process of kind of working on our job was first there was a fee for the overall branding design of the business. We had a logo, but it wasn't very well fleshed out. And I wanted to do more fleshed out branding, come up with a font and some different we worked on some different marks and stuff like that, and so that was kind of its own project. And that was, I'm going to say, about $2,000. Maybe it was a little more. Then we broke down each individual collection. They worked on the packaging for the cocktail collection and the packaging for the simple collection. They broke that down into two separate projects, essentially, and they priced them out separately. So let's just say, and I well, this was a long time ago, but I'm just going to estimate and you know, I don't want anybody to go back to stitch with these numbers because obviously everyone's process is different. Everyone's project is different. But they pretty much quoted each packaging design. So each collection at about another two thousand dollars. So all in we're at about six grand just for design work. The thing that it's that I think it's really important to Realize or to remember when you're doing this. I think I thought, okay, you know, this is going to be spread out over the course of a year, $2,000 at a time. I can handle that. You know, I kind of had budgeted for that. But what I wasn't really thinking about was the fact that when this project was over, I was going to have to purchase all this packaging. You know, the whole point of getting all this work done was so that I could have a product to send out. And, you know, just you have to buy all the packaging that they designed i mean not that you have to of course you could decide not to but then what did you just pay six thousand dollars for so there was you know a another huge expense with the minimums that you have to buy kind of custom packaging in that i just didn't account for in the beginning and all in we probably went over budget you know a lot (laughs) i would say that it probably cost about 10 grand to buy our first round of boxes after all of our design work was done we spent just a lot of money it was just a lot of money and i didn't know what i was in for and we just had to i had to keep moving forward because i basically had spent an entire year working on this and getting ready to launch it and it would all have gone to waste if i didn't you know launch when i did and get it all out there but i would say really make sure that you have accurately estimated not only the cost of the work to work with a designer or a design firm, but you've included in your budget the cost of actually buying these the you know the material or the packaging that you're having designed. A great way to keep costs down something that we did with our initial packaging was we designed one style box for each collection and the boxes were printed identical so the name of the fragrances was not on the boxes it was added later with a sticker that allowed us to buy larger quantities of each box and save a little bit of money and then just add the sticker after We've since moved away from that design for the simple collection but we also decided to go with a much cheaper box than we initially had used in our packaging because the just the design of the other box was not good it was just too expensive and the product was didn't need that expensive of a box so we made some changes as we went along but I think that the most important thing when working with a design firm is don't be afraid to speak up don't be afraid to give them your opinions you know your brand you know what's best um They have the expertise, but for the most part, if you're feeling uneasy about something or you feel like something should be changed, go with your gut. You know, you really know what you want the outcome of this to to be. And I think that initially going into it, I had no idea because the company at the time was still so new that one of the reasons we recently made some changes was I just felt like I had a whole nother year under my belt. I knew what needed to be changed and ultimately it was the right decision because you know it's made all the difference in our sales over the last couple months since we made that small packaging change erica also asked if i looked into working with any other firms before i decided to go with stitch did i get any competing bids and the answer really was um no i didn't i probably should have but i didn't because you know i had seen their work and i really i knew that they were the ones i wanted to work with Um, i really needed some direction and when the business is just you I think that the, unless you are a designer by trade, the process of working with a design firm is just a really great, it's just a really great collaborative exercise. You know, you are getting to talk about the brand back and forth and people are able to give you feedback about what they think that means. And it was just really great going through a lot of those initial branding exercises with them. It taught me a lot about the brand and where I really wanted it to be visually, sometimes I would describe something to them and then they would send me something back and I was like, whoa, that totally is way off base of what I was, you know, thinking in my head, but clearly I was not able to articulate it accurately and that made me realize that, you know, I needed to make some changes to how I was describing things or how I was describing the aesthetic of the brand and the company and they also ask some really hard questions that, I think just as an exercise are really good to go through and to to think through because it helps to inform all of your decisions kind of going forward from your photography, your packaging. They're a really great full service firm. I can't really say enough awesome things about them, but part of their experience level and why I think they're so wonderful is that they are full service in not only designing the work, but helping you find you know, manufacturers for whatever you've designed, whether it's a box or a glass or a jar or a tin. They have a lot of experience sourcing those kinds of things. So they are very, it's very nice to work with somebody who can help you source that material when you have no idea where to start. They also have their own line, it's called Sideshow Press. So they've got a lot of experience in designing products and bringing them to market. And I think that that experience is really invaluable in knowing what works, what doesn't work, what customers want, etc. So I just think that it was really the right decision for us to go with Stitch. I I don't know a lot about a lot of other branding firms. And, you know, sometimes if you're a very hands-on person, it might be great for you to work with somebody who's local to you. Stitch wasn't local to me. All our conversations were over the phone and over email. So, you know, maybe it would have been more beneficial to have someone in the same city where I could sit down and talk with them and show them stuff. But, you know, we sent stuff back and forth in the mail. They definitely saw the product and all that kind of stuff. So I think it was still a good experience, but you need to think about how you like to work best and, you know, what you think you would really respond the best to in terms of kind of how, you know, if you want to hire a design firm or not, and if you want that design firm to be in the same city that you are, so you could maybe go to their offices and talk with them, and that might be a very different experience than what I had experienced when we went through our redesign Our next question comes from Cameron who asks, how do you find a sales rep? Well, this is a pretty interesting question and it kind of leads into some new developments over the last few months, which is we started working with a new sales rep. We're now represented by the Daniel Richards showroom in Atlanta and in Dallas. The Daniel Richards group is a rep group that has been around for quite a while and they're a more traditional rep group than the group we were working with before who we're still working with for the time being, the American Design Club. So I'll start with the American Design Club because they were the first rep group we ever worked with. And when I sought out the American Design Club, it wasn't necessarily because I was looking for a rep group. AMDC had not always been a rep group previously, they were just a designers collective who did trade shows together, namely New York Now. And I knew that because I had been to the show before and I had seen their booth and I kind of knew what they were about. I followed them on Instagram and when I saw that they were looking for new designers for the upcoming show I just emailed them. It was after I emailed them that I found out when they got back to me that they were now working as a rep group and that any sales gotten from the show would you know they would get a commission on those sales. At first I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do if that was something I was interested in or not but I just saw it as a really great opportunity to get into this trade show earlier than I had planned. So I kind of just went forward with it, knowing that our prices have room for commissions because I knew eventually down the line we would probably be working with reps. I just, I don't know if at the time I was really ready to work with sales reps and AMDC being not the most traditional rep group in the world, it's definitely a different experience than working with a more traditional sales rep who usually works off of a territory. Traditionally, reps will work off a territory, usually a state or a group of states, for one rep, depending on the size of the state and the population. Some reps might cover multiple states because the states aren't that big population-wise, but in larger states, there might be multiple reps within that state that just cover a city and its surrounding suburban areas, like Atlanta or Dallas or Houston, for example. When you're working with sales reps, it's important to note that there are independent reps and then there are sales rep groups. When you're working with a sales rep group, you pay your commission to the whole, to the group, to the main entity. And the actual individual reps will probably only get a portion of that commission check. When working with individual reps, you have to pay each one individually. They have their own territories. I don't have experience working with individual reps at all, but I know that a lot of times individual reps might be more willing to take on smaller lines. But I don't know anyone who works with any individual independent sales reps So I think that it would be better for maybe if I find a guest who has that experience and and can speak to that. But I do know that if you've ever done a trade show, a lot of times you'll see people with signs in their booth that say reps wanted. And a lot of sales reps will go to these trade shows looking for new lines to carry. And so that can kind of start a conversation. Another way to find sales reps is to look at your competition Or other companies in your industry who you're aware of and see if they're repped by anybody. A lot of times, this is a pretty easy way to find out the main groups in a certain area. If you go to their wholesale page, sometimes you can see, you know, oh, we're actually repped by this group in this area in the south. This is your sales rep. You know, sometimes they have that information just listed publicly. So it just takes a little bit of time and research to poke around and see who's repped by who. When I was first getting into, you know, starting with Simply Curated, I pitched a store in Atlanta, and it turns out that the store is actually owned by Dan Collier, who's the owner of the Daniel Richards group. I didn't know that at the time, but when they followed up after I pitched them our products just for them to carry in the store, she asked if I was interested in representation, and the line had, I mean, had just launched, and so, you know, I was interested, but I didn't know what that meant. And then after, you know, we kind of went back and forth, I told them I was going to be at New York now because I had just signed on with AMDC. So I was going to be in their booth and um, selling my products there. And so they said they would come by and look at them. And I definitely saw Dan walk around the booth, but he didn't say anything to me. He kind of smelled the candles and then just walked away. And so I thought, okay, that's it. I guess, you know, I guess it wasn't good enough or whatever. I don't know what I thought at the time. I just I just know that I saw him there and, I, and then we didn't speak after that. I never really heard anything else you know, about that. But I had inquired with other friends of mine who were repped by that company just to see if they liked it, how it was going, what the kind of fees were, just to get an idea. And I think this is a real... You know one of the main reasons to make friends in your industry because it, it just can be invaluable information, you don't know who's worked with who, and until you really kind of get the scoop, um, you know, you don't know how what to expect or or just how it's going to go down. So, I think it's really good to always you know, just be open with other members of your community, people that you're friends with on Instagram. If you see them at a show or something, talk to them, get to know them in person. And you never know when you need to send somebody a quick email and ask them about their experience working with this buyer or working with, you know, this rep group or whatever. So I think it's really important to kind of keep those friendships and, you know, just really foster those relationships. Ultimately, it's a relationship-based business. Okay, back to talking about reps. So, To back up a little bit, I feel like I'm running ahead. I signed with the American Design Club. The American Design Club, or AMDC as they're called, is not a territorial-based sales rep. They do trade shows and then they just kind of will follow up throughout the year to stores that inquire. They also have this like online wholesale ordering platform. So, you know, they're definitely trying to do a lot of different things, but you know, for our initial show at New York Now, I got to be there in the booth and help to sell my products and introduce it to the world. At the time, our line was a lot smaller than it is now. Even though it was the same three collections that we still have, we had fewer fragrances, and I had just finished launching and getting all the packaging out there. So, you know, I was ready for some sales because I had just spent so much money, as previously discussed, on packaging and design and all that stuff, so I was definitely ready to get out there and get some sales. We got a handful of new accounts from that first New York Now, but it was mostly because of my efforts and, I, and just physically being there, and I got, you know, just as many if not more accounts from just cold emailing and just good photography, getting the brand out there on Instagram. But I think that being at the show, even having just been there and, and know brands, other companies knowing that you did the show, it, it really did increase how legitimate people thought we were, how people took us seriously, and how willing stores were to take a chance on you. Because obviously you made it here, you made it to the show, so you must be doing something right. And I think that that kind of goes a long way. We continued to work with AMDC for the next two years so essentially it was that uh Janu- late january in new york now that summer new york now and i think that summer hmm, i think that summer we might have also done atlanta with them then in the january of the next year we did atlanta las vegas and new york now with them in atlanta and las vegas they don't have permanent showrooms so they set up at the temporaries And those were a little bit less successful than I think being in a permanent showroom can be at those two shows in particular. And then this summer, we again were with AMDC at New York Now. But right before the summer season, we actually signed with the Daniel Richards Group. And the Daniel Richards Group is a more traditional-based sales rep company. Essentially, they have territory-based reps in different parts of the country and you kind of choose how many territories you want to be represented by them you don't necessarily have to go in all four territories but you know we chose to just go into all four right away because we felt like we were ready for that the territories are the mid-atlantic the south uh the midwest and then tola which is texas oklahoma louisiana alabama they kind of make that its own territory probably just because texas is so big so we did two trade shows with them so far this summer. One was the, uh, the show in Dallas at the Dallas Market. So they have a permanent showroom in the Dallas Market and there was their main gift show. It was in June. Then we did America's Mart in Atlanta and they have a permanent showroom in America's Mart in Atlanta. And that show was in July Now, both those shows were incredibly successful for us. It was really amazing to see what having a team of 30 salespeople will do for your sales. Even since those shows every week on the road, you know, we're getting orders from reps. They're out there doing their job. They're visiting new stores. They're showing your product. It's really nice to know that you really have people who are working for you as salespeople all the time, you know, all year round. That's a really great feeling. By comparison, the rest of the time before we signed with Daniel Richards, I would say that American Design Club made up about 20 to 30% of our annual sales. All of our other sales were kind of gotten in-house. All the accounts were just through cold emailing and a lot of times through stores reaching out to us. Just by having a strong brand and a strong presence on Instagram, a lot of times stores would reach out to us asking for wholesale information. And we did get a lot of accounts that way. But it wasn't hard to start to build up a good amount of accounts, you know, just through emailing and just kind of reaching out that way. What was interesting about when we signed with Daniel Richards. It was kind of a weird scenario. One of the reps, she actually contacted us because she thought that we were a store because we have an online store and we carry another line that she reps and she thought that we had a physical store in Michigan. So she was reaching out because she wanted to come visit and, you know, do a sales rep thing. Um, But then I told her that we were really focusing primarily on, you know, manufacturing our own products So she said she'd still love to come take a look. She came up to the studio, we met, she talked, she said, hey, I think, you know, I think that Dan would really like this and we've been looking for a candle line. So that kind of, that conversation started that way. But what I was most impressed with was once I had sent them samples and I got on the phone with the team down in Atlanta, what was great was that Dan actually remembered seeing my company and they had kind of been watching us grow this whole time. They were watching until we were really ready to take on a, you know, a group of their size. And now that I've seen the effects of what happened once we started with them, I can really see why. And I feel like the timing was actually really good. If we had signed with them in the beginning, I can honestly say it was just me. I would not have been ready for it. It would have been a total mess. We, we probably would have crashed and burned, to be honest. We almost crashed and burned this summer when we had to kind of scale back up so quickly. A lot sooner than we were planning to scale up to that speed we were planning on you know getting back in that grind probably in September or October getting ready for the holiday season but when that started at the end of June and in July with those two early trade shows you know it really hit us hard and we really had to make some adjustments so this is really kind of like the update on what's been going on with us which has kind of been fed in very nicely by a few of the questions, but. Essentially, I had to figure out how to fix our production schedule. What happened was we had all of these orders, but we weren't making product fast enough. We weren't getting product out the door in a timely manner. If I looked at the amount of orders that we had for the month, we were actually only shipping about a third of that in dollars. So we really were starting to see a huge discrepancy between the orders that we got and the orders that we sent out the door which would be the orders we actually got paid for subsequently it was starting to put us weeks and weeks behind our normal turnaround time for a wholesale order is about two weeks or you know sometimes one to two weeks depending on how how quickly we can get things out there but we were starting to push closer to three and even four weeks we were really falling behind and if we didn't do something it was just going to keep snowballing and I thought, oh great, the solution is just we just hire someone else, no problem, right? And I sat down with our accountant and she said, you absolutely cannot hire someone else right now. And I just was kind of devastated because I didn't know what to do and it certainly didn't feel like we could work any harder because I was just looking at the numbers and saying it doesn't make sense, we need to hire somebody, but you know we still have no cash in the bank, what are we going to do? And she said, you're going to have to work harder. You just have to work harder. Everyone is going to have to work harder. And I, I didn't know how to make that happen because we had kind of just been making product as we needed it, but not with a very systemized way. So what we did was we created a production schedule where we slotted in each order to a specific week We loaded up that week and we figured out how much money in dollars all those orders was going to be. We figured out how much money we wanted to ship out every week. How many, not how many orders total, but what were the dollar amounts of all of those orders. What was the total we were trying to be around or above and then kind of set up a production schedule that way. And it definitely took some getting used to. And of course, with the amount of traveling I was doing that summer, It really didn't make anything any better because I was gone so much. They were working on a new schedule. It was really kind of messy, but ultimately now I feel like we've kind of started to figure it out, and it just, it's reminded me that, you know, you really have to be able to adapt when you're growing a business. You know, I feel like I say this all the time on Instagram, and I feel like such a broken record, but there's not a handbook for this okay you know nobody is going to tell you how to do it or what to do it and I'm not saying that the way that we do it is the way that anybody else should do it but you have to figure out what works for you but you also can't be afraid of change one of the hardest things about growing this business has been that there has not been a single week that was the same as the week before there hasn't been a sim- single month that was the same as the month before and when you're growing that fast it just makes it really hard you know it's really hard to predict what's going to happen next month because I don't know this month is totally different than last month and and it's just making it really difficult to kind of start to predict and make plans however when I go back and I look at our projections the predictions that I did make at the beginning of the year which are based on very little fact or knowing, you know, of anything and just kind of estimates and guessing, we're still on track with that. So it really goes to show you how much those estimates, that projecting, that planning at the beginning of the year can kind of just manifest itself out in success because you're just like, well, I don't know how we're going to get there, but we have to get there because this is the goal that I've set and, you know, we have to reach this goal. It's really been encouraging to see. So with that and with all of the success that we've experienced, you know, so far this summer and, you know, summer's practically over. So I guess just this summer, um, I think the hardest part has been that it just still feels like you know, it feels like I'm not getting anywhere. It feels like there's still never any money in the bank and I just can't do the things that I need to do. One of the things about ramping up production like that is all of a sudden you start to run out of everything way faster and you're just ordering supplies like a maniac and, you know, people are working more hours because you're trying to get stuff out the door. So your payroll goes up and all of a sudden it just felt like we still weren't meeting our goals even though we were shipping out what I thought was, you know, the projections that we had, but it turned out we were actually still under by a couple thousand dollars every week. And, you know, that was really the difference. That was the difference of a couple thousand dollars every week would be eight or $9,000 a month. And that extra eight or $9,000 a month is exactly what we needed. And so when you fall under by even just a little bit, what might feel like a negligible margin, when you start to look at the book's you back away from things and you look at the bigger picture that's the extra cash that you need in the bank every week that's the extra money that would help you be able to make these bigger purchases and so by falling behind $1000 or $2000 every week that was really really hurting us and it felt like oh but we're still shipping this much and that's a, such a big number compared to before but it wasn't enough because we had all of these other expenses you had all your trade show fees all that other stuff. We had, you know, big purchases we have to make on materials because we ran out of a bunch of stuff. And now, you know, we still have more materials to buy, still going into our our holiday season, our busy season. And I'm terrified of running out of something else that's really big, like especially our boxes for the cocktail collection. If we run out of that and we have to make that purchase, it's like eight grand. And I don't have eight grand lying around. So I'm really starting to get stressed out and discouraged and Things are happening where, you know, it's a domino effect. One bad thing leads to another bad thing. And so today, as I was getting ready to do this Q&A episode, I was just, I was honestly feeling really discouraged, primarily because when I went back to look for questions, there were only like three questions. And I was like, you can't do an episode with three questions. That's ridiculous. Like nobody cares. (laughs) It's going to be bad. But I just felt like for more than anything, I needed to do this episode for me. And then I got this question and I just felt like you know this was the question that I really needed and this question came from Melissa and she says I would love to know what you do when you're feeling unmotivated or discouraged and it really just hit me because today like the first half of the day yeah I mean it was a little bit yesterday and then today I just like yesterday I just kind of broke down crying really stressed out about money which is kind of how I always feel at the end of the month or the beginning of the month and then I feel that same way again at like the middle of the month which is like after we pay rent and a bunch of other bills and you're just like I'm broke and it's horrible um so I was just feeling really stressed out and just I I just felt like I didn't know what to do then this morning I get a call from our glassware guy saying that you know he didn't put in the order when I emailed him a week and a half ago because he was out of the office so he's just putting it in now and I thought okay you know it's a, it's a little bit behind but usually their turnaround is pretty fast shouldn't be a problem then he emails me back to say that the factory is actually running about twice as long as their normal turnaround time which you know normally it's like eight to nine days and now it's like 17 days or whatever and So we weren't going to get it, you know, in time for when we really needed it. And I just was like, it just felt like one thing after another. And you can never really predict this kind of stuff, especially when you're in manufacturing. There's always going to be issues. There's always going to be things that come up. But you really need to have that buffer because when you don't, you're, I just feel like I still haven't learned to start to put away money from every sale to really save that cash flow for when there are times when we're in trouble I feel like I'm still learning I still cut everything right down to the wire and it's a really bad habit and part of it is because there's no other way around it you know the money has to get spent we need materials you have to pay payroll and you have to pay yourself and everything else but um I just felt like I needed some good news I was just really overwhelmed and just really not not having a great day and what I did was I just got out of the office. Well, at first one of my employees suggested that I just take a personal day, take like a mental health day. She was like, "Just go home, you don't need to be here. We got this under control." And I'm the kind of workaholic that taking a mental health day doesn't work. I would have just gone home and completely stressed out about the business and then just been by myself without anybody to talk to and then it would have just gotten it would have gotten way worse. So I decided that wasn't a good idea, but what we did do was we just went to a local coffee shop. We just got out of the office. They had some lunch. I just kind of sat there and chilled outside in the humid, weird 90 degree September weather and just tried to relax. Just try to take it all in and remember that, you know, everything happens for a reason, but also I I tend to stress a lot. I stress the day-to-day stuff. I stress the cash flow on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis. But at the end of the month, it, it all ends up working out. Not everything is perfect. We don't get everything that we need and we're still learning. But the best you can do is take last month's data and all of those numbers And try to learn from it and have those communications whether it's just with yourself or with your team about okay here's what happened. Here's what we actually did. Here's what we wanted to do. How can we make it better this month? How do we need to change what wasn't working for you? What was working? Just try to keep that open communication going so that you're motivated to move forward. Another thing that I tell myself is when I set goals they have to happen. There's no you know, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I know that it has to happen. And so for that reason, I'm just moving forward as if this is a foregone conclusion because if I just have that mindset, then I'll be able to get there eventually. And that's definitely not the easiest way to grow a business. The easiest way is with tons of cash in your pocket and nobody to worry about paying back. But When you're growing a business and you don't really have investors, or in my case, I have investors and they're my parents, and my parents need the money back a lot sooner than a traditional investor would need the money back. That puts an incredible amount of stress on me, but I just know that even though you know, I'm not able to make the decisions the same way as if I was working with VC money or, you know, if I was in a different situation. I think it's very unhealthy to constantly think about the Well, if it was like this, then things would be better because the truth is it's not like that and however it is for you, that's the situation you're in and that's the kind of truth that you need to move forward with. So, for me, I know the things that have to get accomplished in this third and fourth quarter. And I just have to move forward with doing all of those things, even though I know that it's going to be hard. I know that money is going to be tight, but I know where the company needs to be. And I know the things that we have to do. It's been two years since we released anything new. We've released a couple new fragrances, but we haven't released a new collection. And it's time for a new collection. We've been working on it for a long time now. And even though sometimes it feels like, I have no idea how we're going to get this collection out because I just don't have the money for it, I'm going to have to figure it out. And we're going to, we make some creative changes. We release less fragrances than we originally planned. We we make it work because it just has to get done. It's just the, the next step that has to be taken. And I'm not, I'm really not trying to be the expert or then the person who knows it all because I just don't have all the answers I don't have the handbook I'm not even trying to write the handbook I'm just trying to be here and be as honest with I as I can with all of you partially because this is just an extra large group therapy session for me But also because I feel like it's important to know that other makers are also struggling with the same things that you're struggling with. And that's why I started this show, because I was often listening to other people on other podcasts, you know, just act like everything was all rosy. And I just knew that it that couldn't be possible. Or if it was, then, oh, my gosh, I must be horrible and I should just quit right now. We all have really difficult days. We all get discouraged. We all have setbacks. Almost all of us are dealing with cash flow issues. So I think it's just important to know that you're not alone. And if you ever need anyone to talk to, you can email me. I'll definitely listen. And if you guys enjoy this Q&A format, I do really like doing it. But in order for the episodes to be quasi-interesting, I need more questions. So if you like these kinds of episodes please send in a few more questions and I will do my best to answer them as we pile up a few, you know, to make an episode worth it. We've got a couple guests lined up for the next few weeks. I am moving personally, so I'm going to try my best to get those interviews in and get them out in some kind of a timely manner, but I'm not really making any promises. But I've really enjoyed. Having the show back on and just getting all that feedback from all of you that you listen to it and that you're loving it, it's really encouraging to me and encourages me to keep doing it. So I really do appreciate that. All right, guys. Well, until next time, I hope you enjoyed this little Q&A episode and I will see you guys soon. Bye.